continue to be critical about it. And now that I think the, you know, we are going to have an editor look at it too, and that, the purpose of that person looking at it is to say, okay, what's the reader getting here? That's that's good. Yes, I, I we we have a I have a book that was written by a. Uh, so maybe we should start out with Roland. You were in San Francisco to get on the boat and go over there. How did they tell you that you were going to be going now? Did you get a letter from the bishop? Or? From the mission board secretary. Uh-huh. Um, that, um, well, I, permission, I guess the first thing we had to have was a permission to enter Australia. <laughs> we had that, and we had applied for my passport, and that had come. So then the word came I should, and passage had been booked. Yeah, passport and visa, and passage had been booked on the, this ship, on leaving on the 6th of October, I guess it was. And we left October 6, 1945. When we got that word, we were out in... North Dakota, just waiting for it to come, but then it came, so we had to we had to quickly get ready and go back to Denver, Iowa, where I was to be commissioned for as a foreign missionary. Oh, did the seminary commission you? No, it was um, the mission board authorizes it, and then I was commissioned by my hometown pastor, Pastor Chamberlain. Oh, really? Yeah, with assistance from the, the let's say executive, this is kind of terminology, the executive secretary was a full-time official of the mission board, and he handled all the details, but then there was a board too of pastors that met periodically, and the secretary of this board, the recording secretary, he lived not too far away. He was present for the commissioning too. So was that a ceremony held in church? Yeah. And who was there? Uh, well, you mean the regular, the regular, regular service. Oh, so the whole parish was there? Pastor Brown was his secretary. He preached the sermon. Uh, Brown is B-R-A-U-N. Okay. Elmer Brown. And he gave the sermon. And what did he say? Do you remember any <laughs> essence of that? No. <laughs> what was going on in your head? I can't reconstruct exactly, but I'm sure I Am I up to this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, well, it was just before when we were out there in North Dakota that that one pastor in, in the, on the night evening service where I, I spoke, sure, and he just made some, like a casual remark, but he 
the Lord takes care of the consequences of obedience. Would you like to use that in the story? I think yeah, that's appropriate. that is. So I'm sure that was damaging my head. Now, is that a quote from someone? Or? Yeah, from this. It's his, his own words. I don't know what he, where he got it. Okay. <laughs> and his God name or is the Lord. Which one is it? The God who takes care. The of Lord takes care of the house of his And who said that? His name was Munsa. Fritjof. Oh, how do I spell Fritjof? Oh, F R I T J O F. F R I T J O F. Mm -hmm. I don't think they. Maybe not a Z. Maybe it's, it's just Fritjof. It's a real F R I T J O F F. I think. Might be wrong. I'll. I'll. I'll you can check it up. We can be sure. Fritjof Munz. But you just recently heard that, or did you hear that back at the commissioning ceremony? No, this was out in North Dakota. He wasn't in the, involved in the service, but he just, you know, he knew we were going to New Guinea, and he was a, I think it was a Luther League meeting, wasn't it? Was it an FM, or in Zone, or an well, album? But he I said don't. that to you before you went? Yeah. He, oh. He made remarks, and then he just said that to the congregation, didn't he? Mm -hmm. uh, and that was his comment on that. Uh, uh, when people do something like this. Yeah, how nice. That's great. So I'm sure that was going through my head. I, I, I never forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of things I've forgotten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> forgot. how, how nice and consoling that was. Yeah. So... Um, and then there was a formal, after the sermon, this formal commissioning service, and officially called by the Board of Foreign Missions to serve in this capacity. And do you accept this this call, and do you carry out to the best of your ability, and so on? And they're crying, I guess. <laughs> I suppose. Okay, did you get on the train? The next night. Uh, this was Sunday and Monday night. Okay, did you get on the train by yourself? You didn't go. Or did well, you I go was, to yeah, I, he, we were out in North Dakota, and he got this letter that he had to be ready by, uh, to be in San Francisco by a certain date. So we both went back to, back to, to Iowa. Iowa. And then I, whatever, you know, we had to get his things ready. And uh, Grandpa and Grandpa helped us. And, and we got all this ready, and then we brought it to the train station. And uh, Grandpa and Grandma, and I suppose your brothers were along too, I don't know. Yeah. We all went to the train station when he left. You must have gone to... to uh, where did you go from Waterloo? City Rapids. And then you got the train west to San Francisco. Okay. Now, did you know by this time that you were going to have a baby? Oh, yes. I was. It was October and she was born in December. <laughs> uh, oh, 
me what was going on in your head. I don't know really. Oh my. Well, I, I always say this. You know, uh, I, uh, my, uh, quite a few of my friends were married to servicemen. Uh-huh. And, and they had their children alone. Yeah. And they tried to follow their husbands. So they'd be at the at a port when they came in yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I didn't. I didn't think it was so unusual. Mm -hmm. I think other people <laughs> wondered. But I thought that's that's just the way my life was to be. Uh huh. And you just accepted. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I cried a lot. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I guess I did that all my life. <laughs> St. Paul, and I had such good friends there. They met me at the station, and, and they were a lot of, you know, really good friends. And then I went on to Fargo, and I met my cousin there. I didn't know her very well, but I sort of got acquainted with her. And then I went on to... Now, what cousin, what was her name? Hurley, Hurley Burgundy, H-U-R-L-E-Y. She was and B E R G E N E Burgundy. She was in nurses training and so I stayed in the in her dorm with her and we I had just finished training, you know, and, and we had a lot in common. And uh, so we had a good time too and then uh, uh, I went on to to Williston and and I settled in there with my dad and, and two brothers. Ah. And there I was to spend <laughs> my time until I got a call to New Guinea. Well, sure. I had a call, but I didn't have a call, really, except <laughs> with his. But uh, uh, do you want to tell more about Yeah, that? and then let's go back to, to Roland yeah. oh. going on the train. And yeah. So you got on the train there in Waterloo at about 10 o'clock at night, I guess. I think so. Then it's about an hour ride to Cedar Rapids. And uh, the this or transcontinental train was, wasn't supposed to have been a very long wait, but I think it turned out to be three or four hours I had to wait there. Got on and found my berth. And I, I think it was about four in the morning before we got underway. Slept in, and when I finally woke up, I found that I had missed breakfast. <laughs> and I didn't get any indeed until I don't know. I think it was. I think it were, they were serving only two meals a day, so I didn't get anything to eat till later in the afternoon. But it didn't hurt me. And it must have taken. That was Monday night. I suppose it was Thursday, sometime Thursday when I got to San Francisco. And then when I got there, that's when I found out that I was the only one of the other five fellows. Their passports hadn't come. <laughs> but there was
was this one lady, an Australian lady who had married an American lay missionary, and she had come to America to be with her family's, her husband's family. In the meantime, her husband had been killed by the Japanese there in the beginning, so she was a young widow. But she was going back, and she was going to serve in the mission. Really? In New Guinea? Mm -hmm. But we were there. We were companions for this two and a half weeks. Oh, how lovely for her. He, he called me the night, the night before you were to leave or just before. And I said, well, when did the others, the other men get there? And it was Gary and Marty and Fred was not there. He said, I'm the only one. It was, looking back on it, it was stupid, really, because I, I didn't get to the field much ahead of these other no. three, because I had to wait in Australia, but who could foresee yeah. that? Yeah, so. well, they, they didn't know in the church office how things were out there, really. But that was the scariest part about it, it seemed to me. <laughs> I mean, there were headhunters there, there were Japanese there. Uh, yeah, well, but it wasn't. The Japanese control. were controlled. They <laughs> were? Yeah. The war was over. and The only ones left there were prisoners and, and those that were hiding in the bush. Oh. But yeah! <laughs> there weren't that many hiding. But the, ar it was called the Army of Occupation was there. Yeah, it was military right. control. There was no civilian government. Oh, really? Mm. Oh. Anyway, you're on, you're on the, the ship? The Matsonia. Matsonia? M-A-T-S-O-N-I-E. The Matson Line. Probably their... Luxury liner. Yeah. Their, uh, what do you call it? Is it an Australian ship? No. No, it's American. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that was a... So how many people were aboard, Ron? I think about 800. Oh, my. And uh, they were mostly going to... Uh, well, there were a lot of... Um, Quite a few service people, actually some Dutch soldiers. They were on their way to Indonesia. The Japanese were still in. No, they were in Indonesia. Indonesia, but there was a. They were. The Indonesians were fighting for their independence from another. Oh. So they were. So, uh, Holland was sending out recruits. They called it Dutch. Well, but the whole uh, Indonesia, Sumatra, and Borneo. And that's why the Dutch, why the Dutch were involved. So there were Dutch soldiers, and then there were some uh, uh, civilians. My yeah, my cabin mates were all uh, married to Australian women and going out there to be with their wives. Yeah, to, to get them. So these were American men that had probably been in the military? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and going back to get their wives. Yeah. Okay. Were you the only one going to New Guinea besides this other young widow? Uh, well, no, there were, uh, there were quite a few missionary people, too. None, no other Lutherans, but other groups. They were headed for Indonesia 
and India. Those are the only ones I remember specifically. But that was the way, I guess in normal times, they wouldn't have gone to India via Australia, but, but this was not a normal time. Yeah. They went the way they could get passage. So, uh, so then where did you land? Two and a half weeks on the Pacific? We had a one stop. Oh, we, we stopped in Honolulu for a day, I suppose. And uh, went on to Samoa, Tango Tango. P-A-G-O, P-A-G-O. October. October 26th, I have. And that would be 20 days, and I don't think it was 20 days. Oh, I copied that out of my diary. Well, we'll check on it. Uh, so you arrived two and a half weeks later? Yeah. Okay. And there we were met, uh, well, Mrs. Wentz was this young lady. Okay. She was from there, or from Queensland. W-E-N-Z. So she was well acquainted and she knew these people had met us. And she was going to be working in the Australian office of the mission. It was a cooperation between American Lutherans and Australian Lutherans. Their office, this office was there in Brisbane not in an office building, but in a, the residence of the director. Really? Uh, and that's where, that's where we lived. Most, well, I didn't stay there all that long because when we didn't have our permit to go on to New Guinea, they put me to work somewhat. I would be farmed out to a parish, stay there all week, and then have a, a service on Sunday. I checked on it once how many places I was, was a dozen or more, which was an interesting experience. Um, Could they understand you? Seemed to. <laughs> what was interesting about it? Well, um, I was getting out in, most of the time, out in the rural area, well, I suppose a radius of not more than 150 miles of Brisbane, but we got to see a little bit of the Queensland countryside and the people. A lot of these people were descendants of German immigrants, just like I, so they weren't that different. But New Guinea, or Australia, was really uh, not nearly as advanced uh, economically as we. What were some of the ways you could tell that? Well, uh, the cars were smaller and older. They hadn't had, no, they'd been in the war since 39. We only oh. since 41, so. And they, the Australians, really sacrificed a lot for the empire. They had soldiers all over the, you know, for, yeah, almost. First in the Middle East, a lot of Australians were there in 
what was it, Africa, North Africa, and then a lot of them in the Far East, in Singapore and Malaysia. So they had service people over not much of the world. And it, it was a very small country. The population of Australia at that time was only about 8 million, I think, in a country the size of, of the U.S. Were there some other ways besides the cars being older and smaller that you could tell that they were well, behind? Well, yeah, another thing, uh, even in the towns, the women didn't have washing machines. They still did their laundry in a, uh, boiling the clothes in a copper. Boiler? They just call it a copper. Okay. Uh, and ringing them out with a hand ringer. And especially in uh, parsonages, the pastor, the husband would spend Monday helping his wife do the laundry. Ah, interesting. <laughs> and they didn't have very, uh, very good... Um, modern plumbing systems. They did have indoor plumbing, but it was, you know, you could see that it was pretty dated. And many places there were still outside outhouses. That's a good indication is when the water system is in. How about the sanitary conditions? Were they okay? Well, they were okay, but Australians are pretty casual. They're, uh, they had open meat markets. Oh. I don't know if they still do. They might. And meat would be hanging on the hooks, fresh meat, and flies buzzing around. Mm -hmm. But they didn't seem to be unhealthy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you're in Brisbane, and how long did you stay in Brisbane? Stayed in Brisbane until the 30th of January. Uh, I wasn't in Brisbane all that time, but it I was, was traveling. In the area. Yeah, yeah, I was in the area. Right. I guess it was about uh, probably about the 25th when I finally got the word that my permit had come. So then I went back. Now this permit is coming from from Canberra, from the Department of External Territories. So New Guinea was under control of the military from Australia? Yeah. Oh. Was it a, a trust yet? Uh, then they were calling it um, man, mandated territory, the mandate of the League of Nations. The League oh. of Nations had, okay. well, the League of Nations had pulled it, but the uh, UN, I don't think it set up their trust, uh, trust committee, or what did they call it? It was called the Mandated Territory. Yeah, yeah. after World War One. Well, actually, it was only half of New Guinea. New Guinea that was that was the former German territory was, okay. was mandated, but for administration, Australia was made the administrator of both the northeast and the southeast. Okay, so the northeast had had been a German colony. 
before the war was uh, Australian British. Qantas? Have you ever heard of Qantas? Uh-huh. <laughs> they were operating then already. Really? Yeah. Okay, so Qantas. So Do you know what Qantas stands for? It's a little bear, isn't it? No. no. What is it? Queensland and Northern Territory Air Service. Oh, I didn't know that. That's the only find, time you find a Q without a U following it. What's Q and U? Okay, <laughs> so it's Queensland. And Northern Territory Air Service. Started as a little regional line, I'm sure. Never, well, I guess we had some really little lines here in the U.S. Yeah. Okay, so you got a Qantas ticket. Then did you fly over? DC three. Do you know the DC three planes? They were the ones that were used so much in World War Two as for transport. Called it the workhorse of the. Oh. Air Force. But this was um, a really nicely fitted interior in the plane. I think there could take about 20, 25 passengers, something like that. <coughs> but it was, didn't have a very uh, long, they had to refuel frequently. We stopped. One stop, Bundaberg, I think it was, and then on to Townsville. Spent the night in Townsville. Now, how do I spell Bundaberg? Bunda, B-U-N-D-A-B-E-R-G. Did you stop at Rockhampton? Maybe there are two stops. Two stops between, well, that was the next morning. Um, Two stops on the way to Townsville. That's about... It's close to a thousand miles, I think, mm. by road anyway. So we left about noon from Brisbane and then got to Townsville before dark and spent the night in the Queen's Hotel in Townsville. And uh, up early in the morning, they, some the bellhop or somebody called, I came to your room with a cup of tea, and then got, got ready. I suppose I had a little breakfast there at the hotel before I got on the plane. They weren't serving meals on planes then yet. And stop at Cairns, and then on to Port Moresby, and then to Lay, got to Lay, I think it was about noon. And there were a few... Uh, and is Lay, L-A-I? No, L-A-E. Okay. And this that? is in New Guinea now. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know that's where Amiga Earhart left from, the last place? Oh, is it? So, you landed in New Guinea, and you got on the ground. <laughs> what did it look like? Oh, Really tropical, of course. I was flying over the over from Port Moresby. That's where you got the first glimpse of uh-huh. the forest. 
There were some people, like our superintendent or our president of the mission was there already in New Guinea, and a couple other men, and he was supposed to have been there in Lay, but he wasn't, so there was nobody to meet me. Oh. Uh, but somebody, there's a, they called it the civilian transit camp. Somebody from this camp had a jeep and was meeting people. And I, he wasn't supposed to meet me. I know he wasn't commissioned to meet me, but he must have asked me if I needed a ride. And, uh, not knowing what else to do, I went with him and got signed and registered at this camp. And just waited. See, that must have been about a, a Tuesday. I don't think Dr. Cooter got back there until Saturday, so. Is that the president of the mission? K-U-D-E-R? No, I just was. Now, meanwhile, that woman, Mrs. Well, she stayed in Brisbane. That, and she was going to do her work there in yeah. Brisbane, yeah. In the administrative part. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to be sure we could follow through with her. Yeah. Okay, so you're waiting around. Dr. Cooter <laughs> finally shows up. Yeah. How hot was it? Well, it's hot, but uh, not any. I've experienced hotter weather here when we when we have a heat wave. It is in the nineties usually. In this camp, uh, it was made for wartime conditions. There were board floors, but unplaned. Furnishings and there were. <coughs> it was a kind of a barracks-like building, probably 60 or 70 feet long, and divided into little. Uh, we call them compartments, cubicles. Yeah, screened. Uh, the walls were only halfway, and then screens. And then, and then, but then we had mosquito nets beside. Army cots. Oh, really? And you had to worry about malaria, didn't you, Roland? Yeah, yeah we, I'm sure I started taking Adderall right away. And there was uh, not a little ways from the this barracks, there was a enclosure where there was cold showers. Well, I was there about a month, I guess, and then Dr. Cooter had to go up to one of the other places, to Finchhofen. He got a ride on an Australian Navy vessel and said I could go along since there wasn't too much else to do there. So he went on this Australian Navy vessel to Finchhofen, and there there was, Finchhofen had been a uh, Huge base for the U.S. Army, and there was a lot of warehouses and camps there. A lot of, there were still quite a few U.S.
troops there, a few chaplains. They were carrying on, but their main job was to dispose of all the supplies and get out of there. And our mission was interested in buying a lot of those supplies. And oh, sure. And uh, stockpiling them. So there were a couple, I think there were two of our people there, stationed there and working at scrounging these supplies. Mm -hmm. Do you know that word? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is that okay? Yeah. So I, I helped. We used to it. call it midnight requisition when I was oh. in the military. <laughs> <laughs> okay, scrounging supply. Yeah. And, uh, there were uh, most of the uh, mission residences had, at the coast had been damaged or completely destroyed, but the, the old, um, they called it the uh, inspector's house. The Germans called their the inspector. That house was had survived, and we stayed in that. And At Finchhaven, Haven. Now, Finchhaven is on Papua New Guinea. Yeah, it's uh, the point of the, the east, the very east. Yeah, not the easternmost, but there's this way down at the southeast is Milne Bay. Mm -hmm. and Interesting thing about that trip was that this captain was—he uh, must have been interested in settling in New Guinea after he got out of the navy because he asked Dr. Cooter so many questions about the country. See, Dr. Cooter had been in New Guinea from '34 to '43, so he was—you know—he knew a lot about the country. And this really pumped in for information. Huh. But then, the, then the, I, I must have been there about, it must have been almost a month again in Pinchaven. Oh, then, really? Yeah. Getting supplies? Yeah. Several weeks anyway. Mm -hmm. Then when we got went back, we got a ride in a, an Australian military plane, a Beaufort bomber, I think they called it. Yeah. I think B E A U F O R T. And I remember I sat in the gun turret. Ooh. How was that? That's the only room for, for you to sit, huh? Yeah. <coughs> okay, so now you're there a total of two months. Yeah. So we're I, talking about April now, aren't we? Cause yeah, it must have been. Uh, boy, one thing I should have written when we were when I was still in Australia, I got this telegram that Mary had been born. Oh yeah, let's talk about <laughs> that. Okay, so you got the telegram. You were in Brisbane. 
Well, I wasn't right in Brisbane. I was out in one, one of the, the missions? one of the country towns. And, okay. And uh, they called one place where I had been, and I had left by the time. So they had to call ahead to the next place, and then I finally got the word. <laughs> but I was with a really nice couple when I got that word. Oh, I could rejoice. Oh, that was so good. That you could have people around you. Yeah. Do you remember who they were? Um, the Schuberts, Alfred yes. and Nettie oh, Schubert. That started a, a good friendship, too. Oh, it is S-C-H-U? Yeah, just like Schubert's And were they missionaries also? No, they were, he was a parish pastor, and I was speaking at this. Didn't they say to you, do you know anyone by the name of Mary <laughs> Esther? <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> that was her name, we called her Mary Esther. Yeah, but when you got the word, had you decided on that name? Oh yes. Before? Uh, yeah, we had decided on Mary Esther. If she had been a boy, we... I can't remember. He changed his mind when he was on the ship and suggested we name it. <laughs> but we didn't need to use that name. <laughs> we never did name a baby that. <laughs> well, that's important that we say that. Now, yeah. Mary was born on what day? December 12. 1945. Okay, let's go on with Roland since yeah, we've got an I'll understanding and we can tell later. the other part. Yeah. yeah. So you would have been there two Lay, months now. Back to Lay and, yeah. and there for um, a few weeks and then, uh, well, um, in the meantime, all these other fellows had arrived in New Guinea. Oh. I, I got there before they, but they got there. I think by, by the end of February, those five fellows. Now this is Marty. Yeah, Marty, Gary, Gary, Fred, and Al. Fred and Al. So they had arrived without their wives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No wives were allowed. So and then what happened? Fred had been assigned to a, I was assigned to a station in the interior. To get another permit to go to the interior, and that hadn't come yet. So, in the well, Fred was assigned to a coastal station just across the bay from the Gulf from uh, Lake. Okay. Down here. A couple hours, three or but four hour canoe ride by yeah, canoe. Oh, well, they couldn't go on by land, no. Well, it was possible, but not. It was new on the ocean. Outrigger canoe. So uh, I think maybe when we went down there, there was a, they called them work boats that the administration had for bringing supplies to coastal mm -hmm. stations. And he took some building supplies along. I think we went in one of those work boats. So you went with Fred? Yeah. Just the two of you with some workers? Uh, no, a carpenter, Mr. Berendorf, went to, 
I think he went with, if he didn't go with us that day, he came soon after. Now, he works for the missions also. Yeah. Oh, how cool. There's a missionary from Australia. And so, a carpenter. Yeah. A carpenter, yes. Oh, that's Missionaries wonderful. weren't all nurses and teachers and pastors. They were carpenters and, and agriculturalists and laboratory technicians. And well, it sounds like the Peace Corps. Uh, I, I would yeah. imagine. It was quite, quite a bit the same. Yeah. Okay, so you went by Outrigger Canoe to where Fred was assigned, and what was that coastal station called? Uh, Malolo, M-A-L-A-L-O. I will check it. I've got a geographical dictionary, too, and I'll check the spellings on all these. So. Okay. Um, I mean, if you're not sure at all, I can no, do it. I'm, you're pretty sure? Yeah. Okay. Um, so... Um, the mission station was up on the hill, but uh, there was nothing up there. And there was a, just a hot, we stayed right on the beach there for those few weeks in a little bush house. And then every morning we'd go up the hill and work on the house that was getting ready. Was it decided, Roland, where the missions were going to be? Was it where they had been before the war? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I see. So they were going to reestablish what yeah. had been there. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the mission conference had made these assignments by the executive committee and then approved by the, the whole conference. And that was Fred's assignment. So I, since I couldn't go to my station yet, I went with him. And so what did you guys talk about? Oh, I'm sure we talked about Amy and Edna quite a bit. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. And neither of us were carpenters, but... Um, and did he have any children at this time? No. Oh, okay. They were married about the same time we were. Uh -huh. they, were they lost their first baby. So that was sad. But Before he went? I think it might. I don't. I, I think it was after she was in the game. Oh. Oh. Heartbreaking. She had one, one well child. Oh. Okay, so you were with Fred making the bush house. No, making the. Yeah, it mission. wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't a. Uh, wasn't a proper residence, but a pretty good temper, not just bush material. We had, we had uh, roofing iron, I know, and we, I don't know if we had paneling for the walls, probably did. Better than a bush house. Yeah. Some, I'm, I'm pretty sure there was, there were boards for the floors to screening. No, I don't think there... Could you get that in I think so. I don't think there are any windows, but there's screen for the openings. And we were there, I think, almost a month. By that time, the roof was on. So then Mr. Berendorf had to go back. He had other assignments. And uh, I guess it was time for me to go back. So we, early one morning, we started out in, in two outrigger canoes. Each of you in one? No, Mr. Berendorf was in one with uh, 
helper? Two or three. Okay. Two or three nationals, and Fred and I were with. We probably had at least three, maybe four nationals with us. And there were sales, I guess. We were making good progress, fairly good progress, sailing across there. We were trying to get comfortable. And all at once, we're about an hour out, I think, or maybe, maybe more. The wind changed suddenly and over, overturned the canoe. Yours? Yeah. The outrigger? Yeah. That's not supposed to happen. No. But it did. So it's, then what? Well, Could you ride it? Took a while. First, these sails were made of. Woven bamboo mats, mm -hmm. and they're they're good, but when they get wet, they're heavy. Mm -hmm. So the only way we could get it righted was to get that sail cut off. And uh, I don't know if any of the I can't imagine that these <coughs> uh, crew members didn't have a knife, but I know I had a pocket knife, and they used my pocket knife hack away at the sail. Finally, cut off. Now, did the other boat stop and wait for you? Or? Well, they had gotten ahead, and they didn't. They finally noticed that we weren't coming. And, but um, by the time they came in view again, then we were on our way again. So. Without a sail, then? Yeah, we. I think we tried to rig up a little something with a so did loin cloth. I think we didn't have to row all the way, but it was very slow going. We should have been there by noon, and we didn't get there till five o'clock. And Fred was with you. How come he came back? Well. I'm not sure exactly, but I suppose he had something. Maybe he had to get some more supplies. Or, sure the reason. Did you feel like your life was in danger? Well, could have been. We were a few miles off from shore and shark infested waters. Probably shark infested. We didn't see any. But there, yeah. We were in the water about an hour. any place. You were just in the same spot. Yeah, sure. Just getting that sail mm -hmm. off and uh, then we had to get, uh, attach a rope to the outrigger and then pull with all our strength. To, it's pretty heavy to get turned over. How'd you keep from getting the boat full of water when you tipped it off there? Well, there was some water. I know we used, uh, there was, I think they, they always had a little uh, shell or Scoot for bailing, and I think we used Fred's tropical helmet too. <laughs> Anything, I'm sure. <laughs> oh. oh, Roland. Well, anyway, that night and evening the ocean, or when we got this canoe righted, that's when we sang, "Now thank we all our God." 
story going. Don't you think that's a good deal, Amy, as long as we're well, kind of rolling? Sure. So you survived the trip the, to yeah, Fritz. That's toward the end of May. And we had a, a few more weeks in May. And uh, <coughs> the uh, old missionary from Karawagi had, uh, he was in the, in the island, or on the island already, but he had gone to Finchhofen to, to do some scrounging, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you know his name, Rob? Hahnemann, Hahnemann, Herbert Hahnemann, H-A-N-N-E-M-A-N. Just one in? Okay. So uh, he was doing uh, some scrounging. Yeah, he finally came back to lay, and then finally we, we got our the permit for going to the interior cave. So we were ready, ready to go. We got our we had a charter a plane, um, small planes. Got our load ready, and we were ready to go. And then uh, the weather was not favorable, so we had to go back to the station, mission station, and wait another day, and then the next day we got the plane ready to go, and the weather was okay, so we flew into Karawagi. K-E-R-O-W-A-G-I. Now, the, the old missionary who had been there prior to the war was with you. Yeah. That must have been a little bit consoling, wasn't sure, it, or not? It sure was. Yeah. Yeah. Because this was, that, I was a little bit, getting a little bit familiarized at the coast, but this was going into almost a different world up there in the interior. I understand what you're saying. So we, uh, and there was this, this air service had been started pre-war, of course, those airstrips were there. And this Karawagi airstrip was used quite a bit during the war. I, I don't know to what extent, but it was one of the best landing fields in the highlands. Level, nice level, and at least a thousand yards long. So we went in this little two-engine biplane. It's a fabric fuselage. The natives called those planes uh, balas, that's the word for bird or plane. B-A-L-U-S. That's Pigeon English. Balas, lop, lop, D-Y, nothing. <laughs> that means a, ball, a plane made only of plywood and cloth. <laughs> Can you spell all that for me? Ballas lop lop, L O P. L A P, L A P. Lop lop is cloth, and it's loincloth too. Okay. Ballas lop lop, D Y, that's wood. D I W A I, nothing. N A T I N G. <laughs> it's great. We gotta put that in. Okay. And we, it's about, a, I think, almost a two hour flight, at least an hour. Those planes didn't go very fast, but 
They were very dependable. They were. The Australian gold miners had used them a lot before the war, and the missionaries too. And um, got to this place, landed, and there were hundreds, I think maybe it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say thousands of people Wait. swarmed over the airstrip. <laughs> I don't, nobody was, um, well there was a, there was a, an Australian medical assistant they were called, that the Army Health Service was living in the mission house, so he he was there, but I'm sure he hadn't been informed, so they didn't know anybody was coming, but they sure gathered him. What did that mean? That meant welcome back? Oh, sure did. From the Japanese occupation? Yeah. Well, there hadn't been really an occupation in the highlands. Uh, I don't know if they had even seen any Japanese up there. But all the missionaries had been evacuated, and even all the um, national workers, many of them oh, from the coast, really? they had all, well, they just had to, I don't think they were taken out, they just walked out. It was, you know, they walked a couple, a few weeks to get back to their home villages. But this meant that, um, uh, that things were changing. So you think it was a spontaneous reaction yeah. because they hadn't They been probably given... had been hearing rumors. Yeah. It was a pretty good grapevine in the beginning. But um, I don't think uh, Dr. Footer and Dr. Fricky had gotten to the highway. So. so nobody had been there, but there was some you know, the, there was some flying the, to supply these. The health workers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, the administration they had, they, in Pigeon they called them KIAPS. K-I-A-P-S. -E. Patrol officers and assistant district officers were back there, stationed at various places. So there was some communication. Sporadic. Mm -hmm. yeah. So now you landed and you've got thousands of people welcoming you. <laughs> yeah. And they, they they knew Pastor Hanneman. It was really welcoming him back. I, uh -huh. I just tagged along. Sure. <laughs> they really welcomed him. Handshaking. And oh. Is that how they greeted him, not hugging, handshaking? Well, there was some hugging, too. Hugging their legs. <laughs> no, I, yeah. So that must have been somewhat reassuring. Yeah. It was really quite a thrill to, to see that. And these people were, most of them were in their old garb. There were some that had Pretty, pretty primitive. Okay, can you describe what their primitive costuming was like? Well, they, <clears throat> the men, especially in that area, they had a wide belt made of bark, one to 
cutting, and then they're suspended. Uh, <clears throat> a woven apron, kind of, at least that wide and kind of thick, was looped over this belt in the front, and then the back, they, they stuck leaves wide. What is that kind of called? It oh, is a branch of a, of a, of a, a wide, wide leaf that's really long. That was stuck tufts of those in the back of the belt. And that was it. And the women? Uh, theirs was. They had a narrow stringing belt, and their you could call it a string apron, probably that wide in front, and in the back, strips of bark cloth. Bear tops. The men sometimes wear armbands. They have a very, very, they could make beautiful armbands. They weave fine, fine. And what did that signify? Just ornamentation. Okay. Now, were the people on the coast dressed similarly, or was this quite a new experience to see people, the whole crowd, dressed in traditional garb? Yeah. I think there were, at the coast, they wore grass skirts, but uh, by that, by this time, most of the coastal people wore clothing. Loin cloths, sometimes singlets. You know, I don't know what singlets are. Undershirts. undershirts. Oh! Like uh, sleeveless. Oh! Undershirts. That's an Australian trend. Oh, okay. Or, or t shirts, they wore to yeah. some, quite a if they could afford to buy them. So you essentially went into the heart of New Guinea with this trip to see. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't. Totally new because the missionaries had been started in 1934. Mm -hmm. so been but I'm saying your experience. My experience, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'd heard about this before in mission school and everything, but now you were there. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they had been exposed to missionaries since 1934. Yeah. But then you had a chance to see what the bush house looked like and where mm -hmm. you were going to be living. Well, no, there was the. Pre-war house had survived. Oh. Uh, it, it was a frame house with board floors and board walls and a, a small house, two bedrooms. Living dining room. Yeah. Study. It was very comfortable. Better than we'd been having at the coast, actually. Really? Yeah. Now, what were some of the first things that you and Reverend Hahnemann did, Pastor Hahnemann? We um, unloaded our baggage. And at first, there was this uh, medical man was living in that house. Uh, I've been there, I don't know how many, quite a few months. So he was established there. And there was another bush house just to the side. And we thought maybe we would live there at first, but that the doors couldn't be locked. There wasn't a lock on the door, 
So after a little bit of discussion, we decided we would move in with Mr. Ball. B-A-L-L? Yeah. He's a nice young Australian. <coughs> and we got along here well. So we, he had one bedroom. Herbert and I had the other bedroom. And we, he had, he had uh, boys working in the kitchen that had been doing his cooking. We just joined him and had meals with him. I can't remember exactly how long, it must have been about a month. And then he had made arrangements to move to another station, so we were there by ourselves. That must have been a little bit awkward, huh? It was a little bit, but it worked out quite well. He was, he was very congenial and kind of quiet, didn't say much, but we got along. So this is summer now. I mean, our summer. It's yeah. like June, June or so. Yeah. Okay. End of June when we arrived. It was about the end of July when we were gone. Okay. And then what do you start to do? How do you start to establish <laughs> the mission again? Yeah. Well, um, Irvin Holloman had, he had learned the language and he had done a lot of research on the language. He tried to get started again. One thing that he did, they would have um, sort of formal welcomes and people would make speeches of welcome and he would get, um, after the ceremony was over, he'd get one of the schoolboys to uh, repeat the gist of what was said and he'd write it down language material. Because it wasn't written at the time. No. And what language was it? Well, it's called Kuman. K-U-M-A-N. How many languages are in New Guinea? Hundreds. Seven hundred is the figure they usually say. So when you say there were formal welcoming speeches, are these at the little villages, Roland? Or well, right there at the mission station. People would come from various villages and, and do, do a formal welcome. Oh, really? Yeah. And then that meant that you could go to that little village? Or well, what does it mean? There, there had been contact with those villages before. Now they were... Re-establishing that. Yeah. So the chief would come? Or who? Well, it... Some, yeah, there were chiefs. There wasn't a real uh, firmly established chieftaincy, but there were leading men. But also, uh, these young boys that had come to the mission school before, they were sort of the, the leaders of this new movement. Ah, paid off. Yeah, some of them, and some of them had learned there was this Kuman language of a local language there. But the workers that came in to help the missionaries from the older station, they spoke a language called Kote. K K O T T E. Okay, now that one I've seen. You have? Yeah. I mean I've seen that word. Oh. Maybe it's in what you've written already. Oh. Yeah, I think. Okay. Um, so the and Reverend Hahnemann knew Kote quite well, too. Oh. 
so he could communicate with them more easily in Kota than in Kuma. But he, he taught Kuma quite freely. Now, what were some of the important basics that you needed to know to live there? For instance, did the people from one village usually communicate favorably with people from another village, or was there boundaries and territories? And yeah, they had, they had their areas and gardens uh, were fairly boundaries established. government officers used to say there are three things that the people fight about. Women, pigs, and land. Mm. Well, that makes sense. Now, it was a pig culture. Instead of cows? Yeah, yeah. no cows. No cows? No cows at all. Okay. <laughs> Oh yeah, too. yeah. I, I was almost as soon as we got sort of settled, we and said you should have a, a language boy, and you should start uh, having a language session every day. A language boy would be a language teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but it was a, a young boy. Right. Mm -hmm. You don't want right. to use the word boy anymore. Yeah, but that was the term then. Yeah. yeah. So I would have a session just about every day. Um, there wasn't much material. Irvin Hahnemann had some of the grammar, and he had a good vocabulary. He had hundreds of vocabulary cards, like index cards. No kidding. What a clever man. Uh, he, he was a linguist. Oh. How many languages did he know? Well. Well, he was from a German, so I'm pretty sure he knew German. I never heard him speak German. Uh, he was German. Uh, Kuman, Kapu, and Pidgin. And you're probably available. Anyway, so what were you assigned to learn, Roland? Kuman or Kate or? Kuman. Kuman. Now, did most of the villages speak Kuman? Is that how it was chosen? Yeah, this was, a, yeah, this was a, one of the largest language groups in the beginning. Probably over 100,000 that spoke that language. Oh. There were probably slightly varying mm -hmm. dialects, but they were all, could understand each other. Maybe even more than, maybe 150,000. And the population is about what now? You said um, three million. Three the million. whole, the whole of the country, Papua New Guinea. Maybe, maybe over three million by now. Population has been increasing. But when you were there, do you think it was about three million? Close to three million. Oh, okay. So a hundred to a hundred and fifty thousand of the people that were indigenous now. Yeah. Would understand Kuman. It was the most popular language, would you say? Well, the largest group. The largest group. Yeah. In, in, in the area where, where yeah. we uh, were. Yeah, but of the, there might have been a 
couple other groups that were as large or a little larger, but there are many groups that have only a few hundred. Okay, so now you're so learning the language. So learning the language, and then we had uh, uh, Reverend Hahnemann supervise the kitchen mostly, but he didn't have to do very much. These boys that worked in the kitchen could put on a pretty good meal, and as well. And what kind of food did you eat? Well, it was pork. No, not much pork. Um, but once in a while we would buy a pig from the people, okay. but not, we didn't have pork every day. We had bully beef. What is that? Corned beef, tin, uh, tin in tins, like tins like Spam or... Yeah. Oh, there's regular corned beef tins in the store. She knows what corned beef is. Oh, really? Is. Those square tins? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. She oh. wouldn't buy it. Um, and then we had some sea rations. Of, you know, there was oh, a lot of sea rations. sure. Okay. They were good. Yeah. And then we had chickens. Quite oh, often. Oh, yeah. We, quite okay. Often we had, and, uh, kill a chicken. And we had boiled chicken mostly, I think. And there was all kinds of pineapple at that. We had a big pineapple patch at that. And the people got lots of bananas, sweet potatoes, um, papaya, corn, beans, pumpkin, cabbage. We had a good diet. Anything that grew up? Nothing that went, like no tubers, like no potatoes. Oh, yeah. Sweet potatoes? Oh, sweet potatoes. Okay, that's right. Yeah. Potatoes. Yeah, potatoes. And potatoes. Okay. Potatoes were introduced. Sweet potatoes were the staff of life. But they were white sweet potatoes, not what we think of here. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Okay, so you've got kind of, you're getting the kitchen going. You're getting the house established. You're learning the language. And every Sunday we had church. You did. And how many people would come? Well, um, I can't remember. We didn't, we didn't have a church building there. I was going to say, was it out in the open? Yeah, it had to be out in the open at first. But very soon, the, uh, the boys were over time already. Well, that's okay. I'm okay. Are you getting tired? No, no. I shouldn't be. No. Are you getting tired? Boys, no. Young men got together and put up a school. It was to be a school. But I'm pretty sure we used that for the Sunday meetings. Too. Sure, that's where that Christmas Eve service was. Yeah. So you used it for school building and Sunday services. But I think the first Sunday, I remember, first or second, we had gone to one of the nearby villages, mm -hmm. and there there was a, just a small meeting house where they gathered for uh, Sunday service. Was there a name for their meeting house? You mean the name of the place? Yeah. Um, Angel or? No. 
Okay. It would be fun to put that in, I think, for the reader to have it spiced a little bit. Just remember how lustily they sang. They, they didn't know many hymns, yeah. but they learned a few songs. And it was all by uh, memory. But they, and I always thought of that um, uh, verse in that line. I, think, I don't know if it's from Dickens or some English mm -hmm. book. They made the welcome ring. Oh, I don't, I've never heard that. And I don't in the valley. Really resounded through the valley. Oh. No, Welkin, W E L K I N? I think it is. It's an old English word, I think. Could resound in the valley. They were so happy to have the mission to death. Yeah. They had been, um, these boys that had learned a little bit had started gathering the people together again. That house was there before we came. They had been meeting on their own. They were so glad to have the missionary back again. That's uh, one of the uh, secretary from here who went to make a survey of the, mm -hmm. of the field before and then the missionaries came back. He said that uh, the mission is gone, but the church is alive. Mm. The heart. Now this is before you were assigned there, or after Roland. When the survey was made? Yeah. That was before. Okay, so they could decide who should go where. Well, just to see what the conditions were, if work could get started again. And that was when they had to do that, and then apply to the authorities for... I see, to say we're needed. Yeah. I see. And so, did you know that that's what the results of the survey was? Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. I had been... We had been... Well, it came out in our denominational church paper, those reports that oh. it sent weekly reports, mm -hmm. weekly or I think it was maybe bi-weekly reports, and that was one thing that got our interest uh, off the Encouraged you, huh? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, makes it all worthwhile. <clears throat> and another thing that um, did was I did a little medical work. There was when this medical man moved across the river, and I we didn't have much, but we had a little bit of ointments uh, and iodine and bandages. And people would come to the back porch and with their sores and cuts, and I had, I operated the dispensary. <laughs> Until Amy came. <laughs> I don't know how much good I did, but these, well, with the bandages, they could cover their scratches. And Otherwise, the flies would get on them and they'd get infected. infected you know, yeah. have, you well, know. and you did have some training in mission school about that, did you not? Or not? Not, no, not, not really. Not nothing really practical. Not. 
told. It was because you were married to Amy that you knew that, right? Probably. <laughs> I hadn't taught him much either. Okay. Another thing that we did uh, very soon after we got there, um, Reverend Hunneman had started this station, but then when the war came, there were two at that station. When the war came, he was assigned to go to the neighboring station. That had been a German station, and those missionaries were evacuated immediately in uh, September 39. So to keep those stations occupied, the Americans spread out. And so one of the first things he wanted to do was to go there. What was that station? Ega, E-G-A. So the two first, of you went. Yeah, first long walk I ever made. I can, when it ended, we just about there, it started to rain, and we kind of hurried up, and I was surprised that I could hurry after walking all day. Is this all day? You could walk 20, 20 miles in a day? Yeah. Up and down the mountains? Yeah, it, that, that was, was a fairly good track, but there was, there was a, it wasn't a level track. So was his concern to go there to Ega to see that everybody was okay there? That he well, left and his behind? and his own things that he had left, they couldn't oh. take anything out, very little. And, and see the people too, for sure. sure. And that's where the government officer was, uh, just across the creek. present ourselves there to him, tell him we were there, and so on. Okay, I want to be sure I understand this other part, though. In the beginning, in, in, in September of 39, in Aga, there were German missionaries assigned, so the German missionaries had to get out immediately. They were taken out. They were taken out by the... Australian... Internment camps. Yeah. And then the Americans spread out so that they could cover the missions that were in place. Mm -hmm. Pretty Germans. scary, scary stuff. Germans, Americans, and Australians all working together in yeah. the mission field. That was. But the government said the Germans will come and stay in the internment camp. Yeah. The Germans, oh they yes, were, they took them They on. were the enemy. Sure. The wife of the, the one, the husband had already been taken, and the wife told me that the plane came in, and the pilot said she would she would have to go with the children, and she said, you know. In a half an hour. Yeah, and she had several children, yeah. and she said, I guess he looked at my family and thought she can't, she can't do it. She said, she said he thought, she thought he thought that. He said, well, I'll, if you can find a place for me to sleep, I'll sleep here tonight. Well, he made the excuse that the weather was... Yeah, <laughs> and we'll go out tomorrow. Ah, uh, so he made it yeah. like a humanitarian yeah. gesture. They weren't yes. unkind, usually. Yeah. And, yeah. But that would be quite unkind to say you have to get your all your things together in that little while. But then it, it's similar to what we did to the Japanese in exactly. America. Then. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
the women they didn't take to Australia right away. They put them all together on a one on one mission station, and uh, and they had a doctor there with them. Several of them were going to have babies and all this sort of thing. And then later they were taken to Australia to all the women, and then Project. they had. Family camps then. The, the uh, for a while, for the first time uh, period, the women were found out to um, members of the church. Yeah, yeah. In Australia? Yeah. yeah. The men were Away, Their husbands were incarcerated, really. They were in wire enclosures. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they were the enemy. Um, and, but then they finally. I guess they actually petitioned the Australian authorities, at least let them live together. So they set up family camps, and they lived as families in there for, I bet it was three or four years that they were in those family camps. And they said that was, uh, the children said that was so good. They were living with their parents, then they didn't have to go off to boarding school. <laughs> oh! <laughs> They must have set up school in the camp. I suppose they did. German schools, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, okay, were... so when you want, got to Aga, what did you find? Aga. Aga. I'm e sorry. E-G-A. Um, Aga. Well, there, let's see, there was a, a medical man there, too, living in the mission house, I believe. And he, um, I guess we had to, uh, yeah, got into the house. One house I'm pretty sure was unoccupied and was locked and got the key and went in and looked at what was there. And then they found out that quite a bit of the household furnishings and so on had been taken out of the house and taken over to the government station. And so um, the officer probably didn't know too much about it, but one of the nationals had an idea of what was mission property and what was. Hmm. And so quite a bit of that stuff was returned. Oh. And, uh, and another thing was the livestock that had been kind of dispersed too. Now the livestock would be chicken and pig. Cows. Oh, cows! The missionaries had the mission stations had cows. Oh. When I said there were no cows, I, the nationals didn't have cows. Cows weren't indigenous to New Guinea, but they had been reduced. And every mission station had a few cows. Oh, your farming came in handy though, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the cows. What else was the livestock? Uh, a few horses too. Riding horses. So that, did you gather spend, those up again? Well, not immediately, but that yeah. was part of mm -hmm. the process. We spent a few days there at Aga, and then a lot of people there too came to welcome us. I remember one day uh, there was a long line. I counted how many we shook hands with. Oh, how many? <laughs> uh, I'll have to look it up. It was hundreds. Okay. Oh, that's good. Now, were they speaking the 
Kuman, and I got it right. Were they speaking Kuman here in Aga? Yeah, I was part of that Kuman area. Now, the name of the culture isn't Kuman. It's just the language. Or is it one uh, and the same? Or? Well, uh, Chimbu is a more generic term. That's the name of the province, or Simbu, even now. S-I-M-B. That's, That's the name of the province. Okay. So there were many people who spoke Kuman in Sindhu. Mm -hmm. Variations. Yeah, yeah. slight dialectic variation. So by this time now, are you beginning to feel a little bit more comfortable there, or how is it going with you? Oh, I'm. Yeah, I've. Um, this is probably sounds like bragging, but I was never once homesick. Really? Yeah. Isn't that something? That was where you're supposed to be. I guess. Huh. That's amazing. That says a lot, though. Yeah. It does, Marla. Were you ever homesick? Not really, no. Yeah. I that was my home was out there, so and that's what you've been wanting all the time. Sure, yeah, I think sometimes we could say we we might be lonesome for someone. Sure, uh, but not. But never that's homesick. where you're really sick, you know. Yeah, homesick, no. And that not amazing. We talked about relatives a lot. We yeah, did with our children too. Tried to tried to keep those names before them so they wouldn't wouldn't be too upset when they met people. I don't know if they, they never told us that, that they felt strange when we came to relatives. I never heard them say anything to you. So, um, so that's the way life went on. And, um, buying food from the people, Dispensary work, language work, um, writing letters. We got mail very infrequently. Get a picture of Mary. <laughs> he lost his picture of her in the ocean. <laughs> well, I didn't lose too much, but that was one thing I lost. And then, um, well, October 12th, that's when you arrived in, in Lane, wasn't it? And we, I think uh, Dr. Cooter must have sent word to the government officer. Anyway, we got a note from him that you were coming. She came on 26th, wasn't it? I was in late three weeks. Oh, you were? I went through this whole stay a while business too. <laughs> Wait a while. Island way. 
That's when you first saw Mary. Ah. Oh. Well, it's five o'clock, yeah. and I don't want you to get tired out. So why don't we stop here? It's kind of a perfect point so that we'll know where we were and where we can come back to. I think today went quite well. I feel real confident that I can put this together. Yeah. interesting part of it, I think, really. Well, I don't think there's any part that's really uninteresting, but I think this is one of Mary's strong needs to have this recorded. I mean, that's what she shared with me. She mm. really wants this recorded because it's so very interesting. You know, when their kids go to the moon or whatever they're going to do... <laughs> Well, I went to Washington, you know, in um, October for the dedication of that memorial, and they had the women that are in the astronaut program speaking to the World War II vets, saying thank you for leading the way. And this young little astronaut, you know, blonde and cute and about this big, says, well, you know, when we get to Mars and when we get to, where else did she say they were going? When we go to the moon again, 